Welcome to the Bullpen Sessions. This is Patrick Lillis. Glad you're here. Glad you're listening. Hope everybody's okay, staying safe, staying productive. I know that can be a challenge, especially when they're sort of going back to being this unknown period of are we meeting in person? Are we doing it? Is the play going to happen tonight? Is it not? And I don't know about you, but that little shift around the holidays of the unsettling, you know, knocked knocked me back a little bit on my productivity. Not not that I was unproductive, but just had to work harder to stay focused. And I think that's the challenge right now, uh, is to stay focused and keep doing the work and moving forward and knowing that it's going gonna, it's gonna to show up in some form, you know, one way or another. I had a great conversation this week with somebody about digital media and digital theater and what that is and what it looks like. And, um, you know, thinking about the production of Clyde's on Broadway, they did a streaming and it sold out. And I thought, okay, you know, work is happening and people want to engage in it. Even if they can't go in person, they're going to try to see it online if they can. And there are different forms. And I also don't want to take away from the fact that I love being in the room and live theater. And I think that's also, you know, going to continue to happen. But it just gave me the streaming thing and the and the digital media conversation went right. We're constantly having to think of different ways to do this. So perfect. My guest this week on the pod is Bill Bowers, who is not only a great actor and a great teacher, and but um, a mime and the most probably most renowned mime currently. And I think if we're going to think of you know the courage to do something in different forms, for me it really struck me of like at what point. You say, I'm going to be a mime and I'm going to go and pursue this artistry and a career. And it was, it's a great conversation. I got to know Bill when we worked together at NYU Crowd Acting Project, creating uh, two plays that were happening with the same cast simultaneously, one in one theater, one in the other. And it was a great project that Scott Illingworth uh, and Bill created Johnny Got His Gun and Scott directed both plays. But the project was great. And I got to uh, got to talk to Bill and get to know him a little bit. And so I was really glad to get to know him better through this conversation and ask him about this. And it was amazing because hearing how early and clear the calling was for him to be a mime is you'll hear him talk about that. But to me, I thought that's it's interesting because, you know, sometimes we discover through doing the work, what aspect of the art we want to, we're meant to be in. And sometimes it's so clear. And what I love about this conversation and talking to Bill is it became, it was so clear that not only did he recognize it, but others recognized it in him. And I think it's, a, it, it's great to recognize, to, to hear that and to, and to think about the people who've supported me along the way when he was talking. And, and I hope for you too. I hope you can recognize like, oh, that person saw that in you and encouraged you. And he also talks about the great idea of saying yes. And, you know, the conversation is great, and it really helped me appreciate just the focus of being consistent and and holding on to who you are and also remaining open to where that might take you. He, you know, you'll hear him say that in this writing that he's doing and, uh, and just that idea of remaining open. And before I keep talking about all the things he said, I think, I think I'm just going to let you know, let you hear the great conversation I had uh, with Bill. And with that, play ball. I have been working with a, a former student of mine who is has been working on this play for 10 years. He is, uh, it's an adaptation of a French play that he worked on in Greek, which is his first language. And then he's learned it in English. And uh, now he's to the point where he knows the whole thing and he wants to try to stage it. So it's been interesting because we've rehearsed a lot, but he doesn't really have a plan for performance yet, which is actually kind of fantastic. You know, we've just been able to sit and just figure out the play together well, without yeah, any yeah. other, you know, it's, it's kind of amazing in a way. It's like, we have no deadline for it. It's just like, let's just use this time and get this much done and then we'll figure out what we'll do next. And so. is it just the two of you? Yeah. It's just a solo play um, by a, a playwright named Coltez, who was a French absurdist playwright. 
Um, I'd never heard of him, never read, read anything by him. Um, and it's really, a, it's, a, it's an absurdist play. It's, it's really, it's a lot. Um, but this guy is so committed to it and he's so fun to work with that it's just been, it's it kind of been the perfect project for right now, actually. Right. I mean, if you take away the, the, the need for product, yeah. you, know, you can just be in process. Why not? Because we don't yeah. actually know when product is happening. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which is fine. <laughs> podcast. And I was thinking early in September when I was talking to people, it was like, oh, we're coming out. We're going to, you know, I think by January. And then, of course, this week. Yeah. It feels different, doesn't it? Yeah. Have you been? Yeah. Have you been performing in person? I have done almost nothing as a performer. I did. Um, I did a. Perf- I did two readings down in Florida. I've been. Re- I've been trying to work on my writing, <laughs> so I've gone to a few writing um, retreats. So I've done a few sharing kinds of things that have a little bit of performance, but mostly readings. And I did one public performance in at that place called Little Island. Do you know Little Island out on the Hudson? They had me do something this summer, right on, actually on the 4th of July. Um, I did a date with uh, another performer and that is all I've done. I think I saw that on on the social media. Oh yeah, yeah. And I thought, wow, if Bill's going out, he's going to keep going. When you say, (laughs) I'm going to go back, when you say the writing in quotes, are you developing a new show for you or are you writing like, you know, you you and I were part of the, we worked together at NYU on your adaptation, yours and Scott, uh, trying to get your gun, but is it like a project for an ensemble or is it another? Well, uh, it's interesting. I, um, especially because COVID occurred and all of, I had a lot of shows booked, you know, like lots of people I had, it was, it was the most work I've ever had running out ahead of me it was like wow you know (laughs) i actually said this is my best year ever and then you know so um when that all faded away i started to just look at well what can i what can i use the time to do and i've had this idea of wanting to write a memoir which is somewhat connected to the kinds of shows that i've written in the past for myself that are that are autobiographical and i thought i wonder if there's any way i could start to translate them into something for something to be read rather than to be performed. So I started playing around with that idea and that led to, um, I got very luckily, I was invited to a writer's retreat down in Florida. Someone who had just seen my shows through the years down there nominated me for this residency. And that's turned a really been an amazing thing. So I've just kind of put on a hat and said, okay, I'm a writer now. I'm going to try to get this going. So I've uh, I've been going down to the the um, it's called the uh, Hermitage Writers Retreat in Sarasota, Florida, and then I also got an um, a fellowship at the O'Neill in California. So I went there this summer, and it's been amazing just to have that block of time to start writing. But to answer your question, I'm, yes, I am writing a memoir, but I keep. It keeps veering over and I'm writing a new play kind of at the same time. You know, I'm just trying to follow my follow my hand. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. Where did this calling in Montana? uh, (laughs) You know, my question actually was, where did it start? And did it start to just to be a performer in general? Did it start to be an actor or did you come across the art of mime early? Um, Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. What hit you? You know, it's funny, kind of none of those things, really. Uh, my, you know, my armchair psychoanalysis is <laughs> that, uh, as you mentioned, I'm from Montana and my mom's family homesteaded in Montana. So I have, you know, several generations that are are really died in the wool Montanans. And, and so I'm from this big, huge family from Montana and it's, it's the kind of kind of classic American family that didn't talk about anything. There's a real, there can be a real stoicism about Westerners, about Montanans. Um, and that certainly was true in my family. And I pretty early on just started kind of clocking that, just the, all the things that were not getting talked about. And also Montana is a really big, beautiful, quiet place. So there's that. 
So I kind of, I liken it to, to like circles, like circles of silence. And I, I'm from this big, quiet place. I'm from this big, quiet family. And then I very early on realized that I was different. And then I figured out, oh yeah, I'm gay. <laughs> and that word didn't even exist when I was a little kid. It was just, oh, there's this thing that clearly none of us are talking about. So I got very, um, uh, not comfortable, but very um, conscious of all this different silence really early on. That's what kind of led me to mime. Um, so it wasn't the idea of being a performer that was not even on the table for me. It was more about just paying attention to how people communicate when it's not with words. What do you choose to remain silent about? How do you silence somebody else? And that's always been floating around in my mind. With a real, a real conscious awareness of it at a young, young age. Yeah. 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 Uh, I guess. Yeah. How did you find an, the outlet for that or, or how to utilize it? Yeah. Well, um, a couple of things. I, uh, I do remember early TV. You know, I was born in 1959. So when I was born, we didn't even have a TV yet. But I remember when TV kind of first happened in our house that I, um, I remember those early clowns like Red Skelton and Danny Kaye. And that's where I hooked in. I just loved that kind of stuff. Um, I actually even remember Marcel Marceau on some TV show when I was probably four or five. And I thought he was from Mars. You know, I just, <laughs> I didn't know how to process it. I just thought there's this guy that doesn't talk and he's completely in white. And, um, but I remember him. And so I, I, I do remember those images. And then the biggest connection into mine for me really was Charlie Chaplin because my mom took me to a Charlie Chaplin movie at a movie theater when I was a little kid, probably seven or eight. And um, it was the gold rush. And I soon after that learned that Charlie Chaplin and I have the same birthday. And that just, you know, when you're a kid, that just had a huge impact on me. I just thought that was so important, you know? That's and magic. I think- it means something. What? It's magic, it must mean something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I just became kind of a chaplain. I just loved him. I just loved him. even before I thought I'm going to be a performer. I just was so connected to Charlie Chaplin and I loved the kind of stories that he that he, that he made. And so then in a, I'm a very shy, I'm still a pretty shy person, but I was a really shy young person. And um, then in high school, somebody uh, uh, we had to do a book report in our English class for the drama unit. And I I decided to do, or I was, it was suggested that I do my book report on silent acting. And so I went and I read about Charlie Chaplin. And that's when I remember learning the word pantomime and learning the art of mime was a thing. And I did my book report in mime. Like that was my, that's when I remember like stepping onto the stage of like, oh, this is me in my body doing this thing. I've got to ask, just because you said it like that. Did you do the report in mime? Did you I did. Mime the report? White, white face. Yeah. <laughs> and I got an A, Patrick. I got an A. I have no doubt, because how could they challenge it? It would be their lack of ability to speak mime that they'd have to critique. They didn't have to <laughs> Right. Right. It is such a specialized thing. Like, it's a huge decision and courageous to say I'm going to go out and study this art form that you know you listed like four people who might be considered people who do this art form and you know and and I'm wondering where that did that calling come after college did it come I was trying to track actually when you went and studied specifically mime yeah and I couldn't figure it out if you went before or after or in between Rutgers and right well it um the truth of it is there's not many places to study mime so what I did in Montana was I just <laughs> I just taught myself what I thought mime was and I had a high school teacher who knew some mime and he very much became a mentor to me and taught me like taught, gave me my first mime book and taught me what he knew. And then I started a mime troupe in my high school, you know, but I was just making it up. 
Um, but I knew it's funny you ask that because my one of my sisters was saying to me a year or so ago that she said all of the my siblings have talked about how envious they were of me because I knew so early on what I was going to do, which I didn't. I'd never really acknowledged that about myself, but they all said like, you just had a thing and you, you know, like you had a lane and you got in it and that's where you've been ever since. And so I do know that I kind of decided on some level, like I'm going to be a mime. I didn't know how it would get accomplished, but you know, like as an early teenager, that's what I started kind of defining myself as. And because you can't study mime really anywhere, I started studying theater and that led me to doing a lot of different kinds of theater, which of course I loved. And, you know, I did high school theater and then I went on to college and I kind of supported myself just by doing these weird mime jobs. I actually wrote a, a play about all the weird jobs I used to have. Cause I, it was just, I, I, I just thought that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm doing this thing with my body. So I did a lot of superheroes and crazy characters and that's how I would, pay for school and then graduate school at Rutgers that's when I came to the east coast and um studied you know studied Meisner training but I still was working as a mime on the weekends when I could get work that's that's what my my money was but to answer your question about when I studied truly studied um whenever a mime would come into wherever I was I would study with them if a mime show came to town or something I would take a lesson but Marcel Marceau is someone I saw perform probably 20 or 25 times in my life. And um, the first time was when I was 17. He came to Montana for one night. And my mom, now I think this is kind of interesting, <laughs> you know, in terms of being an artist, it was really my mom paying attention to me. Like, I don't think my mom knew what mine was. She didn't really know who Marcel Marceau was. I don't know. I don't think but she had the sense to buy me a ticket and she put me on a Greyhound bus and I went 800 miles round trip to see Marcel Marceau. Wow. And, and that was my mom kind of turning that key. Um, and I'll always, you know, I'll just always be grateful to her just for like having this like sense. That's something that my kid needs to see, you know? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Because and that not to have even a frame, a real, framework just to recognizing that in you and then not yeah. and, and not to have a framework for it but to know it's important and he's coming to montana yeah coming 400 miles away yeah yeah so great yeah in montana 400 miles you know is like you know just a spin but <laughs> <laughs> but i do credit my mom for like just paying attention that oh there's an artist in here what do i need to do you know like i think she just followed her gut about that about that and then years later i would study with him like it, it turned out i got to work with him in the last years of his life so um he is a huge influence on me he started at a very young age and then i got to spend a good chunk of time with him great great i i may have i i'm learning something just when you were saying you were doing mime shows on your own like creating and going out and, and doing all the crazy jobs um is it because I, I sort of assumed, oh, I went and studied and then you created shows and you were able to make a living doing it. But if you were already miming, right, you were already working and making yeah. money that money as doing it as your job, because I was. Uh, I was curious where it came about to in how to incorporate that as a performance. And did you just, it's funny, as you're talking, I'm thinking about myself like in high school and having a group of friends and, you know, we didn't study improv, but we went and did improv. You know, you didn't study mime, but you went and did it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or you studied it as much as all of us, you know, you read a book and you had one teacher who maybe yeah. knew something. That's great. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, Shields and Yarnell, do you remember them? Yeah. Um. I mean, that's also was happening too. That's like in the late 1970s, like mime had a certain peak of popularity and they were the peak of it. So like Shields and Yarnell had their own TV show. So there was this kind of like high watermark that was happening <laughs> in mime in our culture. It was like the beginning and the, 
the beginning of the decline of what people thought of mime was in that time. So I was doing something that wasn't as odd as it feels today. And when you moved east, did you move, was the goal, it feels like mime is like part of your, uh, at the time, part of your artistry, yeah. and also part of your acting. And was it to come, as you said, study Meisner, you know, was it yeah. to come and, and, and traditional acting or was it always an awareness of character work that was going to be in there? And uh -huh. what, was, what was your goal when you came? Well, again, I, <clears throat> even though I'd studied theater in Montana at a little tiny college called Rocky Mountain College, it had a one person program, one, you know, one professor. So, I mean, I got an amazing education because I got so much attention and freedom to do things, but I still didn't know very much, you know, like I, <laughs> I had never taken a movement class. I had never taken a voice class. I had just done theater, you know, as best I knew how and would learn from people as I went along. So when I, I was just encouraged to apply to graduate schools because my one professor there said, you know, this is someone that should study this. And I, I didn't even know what I needed, but I auditioned for a lot of grad schools and Bill Esper, who was, had just started a program at Rutgers is the one I, he chose me. And I had never even, you know, crossed the Mississippi at that point. I was like, I don't even know. I didn't know where New Jersey was. I had to look it up, but when I met Bill, um, my first day of class, he said, I was wearing a striped shirt and he said, you look like a mime. And I said, I am a mime. And he said, no, if you're, if you're studying actor, you can, studying acting, you can never be a mime. And that was the day one of class. That was like, he laid down this rule. Well, of course I kept doing it, you know, on the weekends, but I never told him because I, you know, I was trying to make money. And then oddly enough, 20 whatever years later, when I met Marcel Marceau, I gave him my resume and, you know, I had, I had Broadway credits and all this acting training and stuff. And it completely blew up in my face because Marcel Marceau said to me, if you're an actor, you'll never be a mime. And I yeah. thought, oh my God, I am stuck between Marceau and Meisner here, you know? So uh, <laughs> that was interesting. I would say, you know, you did both. So that's good. It worked out. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. actually, one of the things I was sitting here going, what do I want to talk to Bill about? And one of the things was you pick something so unique. And I think at this, at the, the farm theater cultivates early career artists. And, the yeah. and one of my thoughts at this unprecedented time is the willingness and the courage to sort of set your own path. Right. Yeah. And, and I think we have to, because I don't think, I don't think there's an established path right now yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, or a defined one at least. And, and you did it. And then I'm hearing two teachers. And the one thing I would never want is the teacher to say, you can't do this and you can't yeah. do, you know, and there's always the, the training programs that say you can't work professionally while you're learning, you know, right. Right. You also have to make money, you know, <laughs> right. And live. And, and yet you, you're, you kept doing it. And it's interesting because it seems like both, teachers, I was going to say mentors, but both teachers saying this definitive thing. It's like, well, I'll listen to you for the training, but I got to keep working. Right, right. And, and this is what I do. There was a, I have to, looking back on it, there was a certain kind of um, defiance in me or pseudo rebellion. It's like, oh, I, I'm a really affable guy, but if someone says you absolutely can't do this, I will, pro I will probably do it. I've, I, that's just in my nature. So <laughs> some of it was work and some of it was like, no, I can, I can be a mime because I'm, I am a mime and I'm also going to study this acting. And oddly enough with Bill Esper, um, I, I ended up being on his faculty. He had me teaching mime at the Meisner at the, I still teach there. So it all worked out. Right. But, you can be a mime if I need a mime. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You can't be a mime while I'm teaching acting. Right, right. Oh, Lord. But I do think that's, you know, I know a little bit about your theater company, and I feel like that has been the, the blessing for me is um, because I didn't have, I didn't have a lot of savvy, you know, I didn't have a lot of exposure to theater, particularly mime or anything really. And I just had, 
I feel like along the way, I have had people who were paying attention that could like, I feel like they'd almost like put the next stone out in front of me and say, here's something beautiful, pick this up. You know, here's something. My mom taking me to Marcel Marceau or Charlie Chaplin and my drama professor thing saying, I think you might want to go look at graduate schools. And I didn't even know what that meant, but I felt like I would get the signal or the invitation of the next right thing to do, you know? Yeah. And people, like you said, people paying attention. Yeah. Right. Because that is what I think we all need as well as the courage to listen. (laughs) You know, when you say go on a bus for 400 miles and back. Yeah. Obviously you wanted to, you knew what that was, but, but not to say, no, I don't want to go alone or I don't want to do that. You know? Right, right. Just to say yes to it. Just to say yes. Yeah. Martha, do you know Martha Banta? Yeah. Yeah, I thought you would. Almost Scott Illingworth and Martha have been my two directors of the shows that I've written. And Martha Banta, when I first started working, <laughs> when I first started working with her and just telling her about my weird stories and weird jobs and everything, at one point she said, Bill, did you ever think of just saying no? And we have laughed about that for years because I realized no one had ever really even asked me that question. I never really thought about saying no. I thought about, sure, you know, <laughs> there's the next thing out in front of me, you know. Do you have an acting agent? Do you have a representation? You know, it's funny. I don't right now. I certainly have used agents through the years a lot, but I don't now. Yeah, I was looking at your website and it was I was searching around and I thought, I, I don't either. And my my feeling is like, I'm. it seems like you are always creating your own projects or opportunities or being in conversation with people who are inviting you to do things that you say yes to uh, <laughs> to a writing retreat to write your memoir. Um, uh, but it does seem, I was curious about that, like you creating your own opportunities. And when, when did you feel like, was it talking to Martha? What gave you the courage to say, you know what, I'm going to create my own show. Oh yeah. My own first time. Cause, and is it it goes without saying is mm-hmm. that the first one that's the first one yeah 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 well i had actually written a play before that i i had gotten invited to be part of this thing called the institute for arts and civic dialogue which was a consortium up at harvard um and anna devere smith ran that program and i was recommended to her and so i spent two summers up there and that's when i first started thinking that I could be a writer. I was actually studying with Marcel Marceau at Harvard at the time. So I was doing two things at once. And Anna is the first person that said to me, I think there's, if you look, I can't remember her quote, but she said, if you look deeper, there's a story to why you are a mime. And that started me. And I wrote a piece up there that was a completely silent piece, but it was the first full play I had written and started performing that around. And then I was doing um, The Lion King on Broadway and I got this reputation for my goofy stories that I would tell during intermission. And people would show up in the dressing room and I would kind of tell like a story a night about some ridiculous, crazy thing that had happened. And for, I believe my birthday that year, my now husband, Michael, gave me a book, an empty book and said, write your play. So. I started that. I thought, oh, okay. And I just started taking notes. And, um, and people had said to me like, wow, you should make a play. You should write a play. I didn't, I didn't even think that was a possibility. Then I met Martha Banta and she, you know, I was performing as a mime somewhere that she was, that she was. And she talked to me afterwards and said she enjoyed the show and said, you know, and I really don't like mime. And I thought, oh, that's kind of perfect. So, <laughs> so that's how our conversation started. And she said to me after we had several meetings and I talked to her about what I'd done in my life and this whole journey of becoming a mime, she said, I think there, I think we can work on a play here. So she took it on and we developed it at the Adirondack theater festival, which was, the right. I was going to ask if she was already there and she was, she had been there a couple of years and I, oh, that's what it was. I had done a benefit a Broadway performer's benefit for that theater company. That's how I met her. And then she said, let's give this a try. And we, it just, that's how it started to be becoming a writer. 
Yeah. It, it, it's amazing. I also like the fact that, you know, she didn't like mime. So you're Isn't like, that hilarious? Well, that's the person I want to partner with, <laughs> which is probably good. She'll keep, keep the focus just on story. That's totally true. And she's continued to be that person for me. You know, like it's a wonderful, I don't know, like a editing tool, if nothing else. It's like, we're, we're not going to use mime unless we need it, you know? And she's not, uh, she's just not taken with the magic of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost impossible not to just say like, you're exceptional at what you do. So that becomes this undeniable, this becomes, that becomes a for me to say it, you don't have to say it, but you know, you're exceptional at it. So you're, you're also having success at getting into, you know, Lion King and, um, and different shows. When you create this show, I'm really impressed in the fact of how you get them to have the life that they have. And, and it seems like you take that on yourself. Am I correct? on yeah. making these things tour. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to have someone do it for me if you're ever, if you if you know anybody. <laughs> listen, listen, when somebody hears this podcast, then you're going to get it. Good. Well, I'm <laughs> completely looking for representation and support. But again, I think it comes down to, for me and my experience has been like, what's the next thing to do? What's the next thing to do? And um, again, I have had incredible people who have, you know, recommended me and passed me forward and that, you know, that kind of thing. But I learned in terms of agents, for example, agents just historically have not known what to do with me as a mime, you know, you know, I would, I would continually get sent out to commercial auditions when they really wanted a Ringling Brothers clown or they really wanted something, you know, that, and I'm also not particularly a white face mime, I mean, I can do that, but my work has just moved into kind of other areas. And so uh, agents didn't really, were not that helpful in terms of getting me the kinds of work that I wanted to do. Like I would get things like, oh yeah, they want a mime show uh, for the cafeteria during lunchtime at this college. You know, it'll be a portable stage in the cafeteria. That kind of, you know, I'm like, well, <laughs> that's not really what my shows are. And so I just figured, I had to, I had to like figure out how to get it to move forward myself. So I started, you know, just with people I know at colleges, you know, I had done, I had started doing a lot of workshops at colleges. So I just reached out that way and that became a network for me from it, one college to the next. And is it you reaching out to people that you already had been a guest artist at? Is it, I, I think it's me asking for the courage or, or, just acknowledging that it's the cold call of saying, Hey, I have a show or I want to, yeah. Or I want to develop a show with a school, but, yeah. but then they, but they seem to have a life of actually touring and that's a lot of work that's calling and booking and yeah. promoting. It is. It's all of that. But I did have, for me, it was a lot of cold calling, but I just also was really lucky that people would recommend me and say, listen, we brought Bill in. He does this very unusual type of, physical storytelling, he can offer workshops, blah, 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 you know, and I, I got a lot of it just through that, you know, one person's recommendation to the next. And when you get there, I I don't want to mispronounce what I'm going to try. The, yes. The Heyoka? Oh, Heyoka. Yeah, Heyoka. 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 The Heyoka show at University of Wyoming. You developed, yeah. you developed it with their students? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I'm looking at pictures of that show, and I'm wondering when you go to the University of Wyoming. Wyoming. Do you, at what point are you going? Like right now, you're in a workshop process, all process oriented. At what point do you say, okay, and we're going to need people who can fly? <laughs> and at what point do they sign on <laughs> and fully? Are they in process with the workshop and then they say, we'll produce this in a year or does this just organically keep growing and, and they support you? Yeah, that I, the great question. I, that was such a lucky, amazing experience that I don't even know if it could happen again, but that, that job at University of Wyoming came about because I was touring, it goes without saying. And um, I had actually gone through University of Wyoming at some point with another show of mine years before. 
And the head of that program, Lee Selting, saw me at a conference doing, it goes without saying. And he said, listen, we're just getting this fellowship. It's just being, just being established to bring in eminent artists for the University of Wyoming. I'd like to nominate you as the first one. It was kind of like, you know, just out of the blue. But he thought he had seen me do workshops and we knew each other a little bit. So he just had a hunch it might be a good match. And it was. So I spent, um, I guess, three months out there. I can't remember how long. Part of a big chunk of their quarter. And he had no requirements at all. It was like, what's the piece you want to work on? He assumed I was going to come there and work on a solo piece because he had seen me do one. And then I thought, well, here we have all these students. Why don't we try to make a group piece? And I was, um, I had been, and still I'm studying this um, phenomenon in Native American cultures called the contrary clown, this idea of contraries, which I find really fascinating because they exist in many, many Native cultures. This, um, this spiritual clown who basically is the opposite of everyone else. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but um, they're, a, they're really, they're a revered, um, individual in many, many native communities. And they essentially teach that there is more than one way to look at things. You know, they, they ask you to kind of just flip the picture all the time. So in the Lakota culture, it's called Heyoka. And I, I love that name. It means, uh, Heyoka means the one who walks backwards. And um, so I took that idea just as a framing device and said, what is it to be different in the world? And we just did writing exercises on that idea about being what is it if you transgress what if you don't fit and just developed a piece out of that and it just so happened that at the University of Wyoming you can also study vertical dance which is aerial dance and as soon as I heard that I said well somebody's got to be upside down you know <laughs> <laughs> um, so that piece it just was, we had a kind of a luxury of having a good chunk of time um, and a really willing group of students who had never really had any kind of physical, you know, physical ensemble work, any training like that before. So it was a really fertile place to drop that seed. Yeah. Yeah. It was perfect. Yeah. The perfect marriage too, of that department just. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. Cause I go, that doesn't come out of a workshop easily to get no. to that large of an expense. It was bigger than I even imagined. Like in some ways it kind of, it probably should have been in a black box, but because I think it was this fellowship that was getting a lot of attention, we also had that kind of energy of like, what is this thing going to be that, you know, they brought this New York artist in and it, so it started to like expand on its own while we were trying to figure out what it even was going to be. So it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Great. And you also, it's funny, I was like wanting to ask, like that, that goes along with the idea of just saying yes also, but you having a positive energy of yes, but other people, first they say yes to you come in and then your infectious spirit of yes grows to people hanging <laughs> upside down and flying, <laughs> and, which is lovely. Um, <laughs> Oh, this is amazing. I'm, I'm curious about so much. And part of me, it's like you started teaching. Did you start teaching because people invited you in as a mime? At what point were you? Because you're obviously great at teaching. So I'm curious at what other, did it, did it, did you recognize, was it mime or did there other things that, that came out of that? What got you into teaching? Because what I want to get to also is your recognition of the physical life being able to be something for people who maybe have other communication challenges or disabilities. And there's a, it's a new way of learning. Mm -hmm. And did you discover that through like being at an acting training doing mime or did you discover that in a classroom with children? How did that awareness come about? Well, um, I've always, taught mine because that's how I was learning it was by trying to figure it out in my own body so even you know when I first started doing it in high school I was kind of leading mime workshops because I had this 
well, I had a real interest in it and I wanted to, you know, kind of pass it on to some other bodies. So I just really early on started to figure out how can I communicate how to do this thing that we're working on called mime. And so that would just always lead, you know, to, oh, let's have him go to a mime workshop at this, at the Girl Scouts. Let's have him do one here. And um, I'm trying to think when I first started working with, uh, I'd seen kind of like a natural um, uh, next step was with was children with special needs or different learning challenges. It, I started uh, when I was at Rutgers, I was called by uh, um, their cognitive learning center and they were working with people with um, head trauma and brain injuries. And for whatever reason, they connect. This is even before the internet. So I can't remember how anything happened before the internet. I don't know about you, Patrick, but like <laughs> no. somehow, somehow somebody heard that I did mime and I did a lot of workshops in cognitive therapy, which was really, really fascinating working with people who had, you know, like gone through windshields and, you know, were learning how to walk again and those kinds of things and learning uh, like how to do job interviews and how to recreate, how to remember, how to like kinesthetically remember how to um, communicate positivity and openness, like when they're, when their brain is functioning in a different way now. So it was, it was just fascinating. I didn't know what I was doing. Again, it was just, I, I seemed to have a tool that people wanted to, to try to use. Yeah. No, I was curious how that awareness came about because it made sense to me. You know, it mm -hmm. made, when I read it on your website and also uh, talking to somebody who is, uh, who's a fan and, and has been for a long time and, and they're an immigrant and they said, oh, I love clowning because... And I think when there's a language barrier in the beginning, yeah. Yeah. You know, also in the physical storytelling and the physical humor is something you can connect and relate to because it's yeah. not your first language. Right, right, right. Yeah. One of, the best, one of the best survival jobs I've had in New York has been with the New York Public Library. And for 25 years now, they have sent me around as a mime to the, the branch libraries all around the five boroughs of Manhattan. And as you, I'm sure, you know, these neighborhoods are, you know, are very ethnic. Uh, and so I would go to um, like uh, Coney Island, for example, and it's predominantly Russian. So I would go into these little branch libraries and there would be like, um, you know, little kids, but they brought their grandmothers who don't speak English, you know, so it would be introducing mime to children, but also, you know, getting to meet this older audience who who knew silent film for example but they didn't know english so it's been this amazing experience of like meeting a lot of different cultures and generations and uh and and being able to talk about what mime is which is my goal is to pass on what the art is right and they can get the they get the art but they're also that grandmother who's re-energized probably because yeah. they're fully experiencing something and the kids are translating it to their grandparents. It's just, it's so moving when it happens. I just love it. That is fantastic. Yeah, I was wondering how that came about. And 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 the, it seems funny. You're like, and I do this and I've been doing it for 25 years. It seems like everything is cumulative. <laughs> like it keeps adding, you know, but it's like, and you did a show and now you have a portfolio of shows that may become a memoir, but also right. may become another show. And it just, everything keeps adding, nothing goes away. Also, when I think about the networks of places you've worked, like you said, universities, and you call them yeah. up and do that, is, and the internet, how do you feel, are you able to stay in contact? And I feel like with all the different places you've worked, like, how do you keep that fresh for yourself? Or do you not worry about that? And just when it comes to mind, I reach out. In terms of just staying in contact and keeping, keeping relationships connected yeah. and alive and yeah um i i try i i try to do that um and it's and covid is has been challenging in that way because there's just there's no there's no movement out there there's nothing to report in you know <laughs> <laughs> but there's no impetus for 
yeah. oh, I should reach out to so-and-so. I yeah. thought of them. Yeah. And it's also interesting, too, because I've been doing, you know, I've been on the road for so many years now. A good number of the people that I know, like from theater departments and that kind of thing, they're retiring or they've moved on. So it's like, wow. And there's been this big break from COVID. So it's like, I wonder how I will get traction to move forward. It's going to be a different thing when it's just a, a whole different group of people and uh, a different time. How much, I mean, how much will departments and theaters be bringing people in from out of town? I just think it, it remains to be seen. Right. So that brings me back to like, well, I'm going to work on my writing for right now and try to see what that does. Yeah. And I think it's good. I think it's, when you're writing your memoir, this not podcast, whatever, but when, when you're writing it, are you, are you enjoying the experience? And are you starting to, are you, did you know, since you were telling stories in your dressing room at intermission, do you know that there were stories you want to tell? And while you're telling it, are you making connections? Are you making discoveries as you start to put this all down on paper? So interesting. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm not, I'm not trained as a writer, you know, it's not, I mean, I majored in English. So, you know, I, I wrote a few papers in my time, but I'm, I'm just not trained at it. But what I, to answer your question, yes, I'm really enjoying it, but it is so um, layered for me. Like when I, you know, when I thought I'm going to write a memoir, I, you know, got a couple memoir books and I looked online and I think, well, I'm going to make that outline. And I have a big outline right out in front of me and started writing that and, really was like staying right on this ladder of, of how I was going to tell stories and what led to what led to what. But, you know, as I would get further into the experience of writing, it would just start to veer to these other memories or thoughts about those stories. Because a lot of these stories I kind of solidified a number of years ago and I've been, and they've become very performative. You know, they become this, you know, like my, persona Bill Bowers that I tell stories in and I'm a different person now I'm in a different place in my life and so I'm starting to write on and I'm starting to have like deeper memories some of which are really painful and very very hard and I'm wondering what to do with them you know so the act of writing is is creating this whole um, like underbelly of feeling and memory and experience that I am trying to just, again, this let, I just try to follow my hand and just let it come out, but I don't ultimately know how they will, how they come together. That's great. I actually think that's gotta be the challenge, right? Because you said they become performative, certain stories, yeah. and they're like, they're no longer the truth. They're now the story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you said you're a different person than you were then I'm going to ask this question that's a little out of context but it's a question I like to ask is when you think today versus like starting those mime troops in high school or or coming east is what do you think shifted for you or has it shifted what do you think you bring into a, a room than today what do you carry with you do you think all the time that you didn't maybe have 25 years ago Oh. Well, I do. <laughs> um, I do. I'm 62 now and I am learning to, <laughs> to say to myself, Bill, you actually know a few things, you know, some things now um, for a long time. I mean, and I still fall back on this. I don't know if you ever do this, but I I very often will like, just as I'm about to start teaching, just be thinking like, I am completely, I'm just a blank screen. I know nothing. I have no idea what I'm going to say. And I just put myself in this position of such a deficit. I, I don't know why that is, but th that's been my thing. I've always done. And, uh, and now I'm learning to just kind of listen to another voice and say, actually, I'm stepping into a room of 19 year olds and I probably know quite a few things that I could share with them. So I'm trying to just give myself that license to be an authority or, or yeah. have some level have, of expertise. Uh, yeah, you do have level of expertise. <laughs> but uh, some, I, no, I have that. I understand that feeling completely. It's actually, 
I, I will tell you that I've been working the last, I don't know when this realization of you having experience came to you, but I've been actively working on when I'm entering the room to like teach or do something to, to, to fill up with the things that are experienced, to remind myself like, oh, you've done this. You know what this is and this, and you've done this so that I enter the room with a sense of value. Isn't that, wow, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That's yeah. great. And it's, it's a conscious thing because it's so, yeah. and I think it's partially because we're always discovering and learning that we forget that we know stuff. And also yeah. we do it every day. And if you do it every day, we almost take for granted that we, you know, like, well, that's not, that's not special. I did that. I do that all the time and forget yeah. like, oh, right. But that 19 year old's never done it. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I was also going to say in terms of what I'm, I think what I've learned about myself as a teacher is that, you know, when I was becoming a mime, it was Marcel Marceau and Shields on Yarnell. And they had these kind of images. You're like, oh, I'm going to be like them. I'll look like them. I'll do that thing. That isn't most, most young people don't know who any of those people are at this point. So I feel like my, what I want to do as a teacher is, allow a space where a person can find their voice physically, you know, to, to kind of explain that for me, mime is, a, it's just our first language. It's our first language. It's gesture. It's, it's your essential physical being and to trust that and then allow yourself to follow an impulse and make it a little larger. And then we're going to fill this space up a little bit more. So it's giving value to everybody in the room. Like you don't have to look like me as a performer. I just want to know, I want to let you see who you are in shape and space, like whatever is inside you that you want to share. There's ways we can get that out into space and I can help you with that. That's what I think my job is now. Yeah. And did you know, I think that, giving them their voice is the most effective way to teach. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually what I think our job when we're teaching is, is not to yeah. do it like we do it, but give them the tools so they can do it how they would do it. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then it generates it, you know, then the other part of it is like generating work that, I feel like that's another thing that just is changing in, in terms of the theater world is, you know, there's a lot of actors out there. There's not a lot of, <laughs> not a lot of jobs. Another really viable thing is to make your own work, make your own piece. And that could lead to someone seeing it, but if nothing else, it just is a, it is a, a way to feel creative and valued and a way to connect with other people. And so I, my teaching has really moved away. Not well, it has, it has moved away from like professional actor training, you know, and you know, all of that. There's other classes for that. I feel like mine is about helping people find a, a, a toolbox of physical skills and then an awareness of their own point of view and trusting it and, and seeing where we can go from there. And when you started to, to get to that trusting it, it also sounded like you were starting to the idea of not only finding your own toolbox and your own voice, but creating your own opportunity. Yeah. Story. Yeah. 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 I think, yeah. I think it's vital. And I think right now there's so many forms to do that in that, like not to, to, to people to recognize that they do have something, their instinct to be an artist was probably because they had something to say, you know, they right. Could, you know, they had to find out how to say it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I turned back the other way last year with them, um, you know, when we were all on zoom teaching and uh, I was so discouraged at first. Cause I, I mean, I just didn't even know what zoom was when it first started and I'm just not from that world. And I felt, you know, like ugh, nothing, nothing that I, have to offer is going to be useful here. And then I started just really listening to my students who live in that world much more than I do. And I learned so much from them about what's possible to do on a screen. 
And I made several pieces with students last year that are on Zoom that are fantastically theatrical. And I would never have known how to do that if I didn't listen to my students, you know, and let them lead. Um, so that was, uh, I mean, I really, really grew so much as a teacher last year um, in spite of myself, you know? Yeah. Well, also, also glad to hear that because it's true. Like, I think we, I think everybody found it challenging to be on Zoom, but it's like, yeah. well, we also grew. We also had different tools and we had different things. I mean, I was saying at the beginning of this, like, oh, I also have to hit record because, <laughs> you know, right. But, but we also found, I mean, especially playing in space on a, you have a square right here. Yeah. Yeah play with and um i don't know why i hesitated to mention this earlier when you were talking about not that mimes look like this they look like this i went on a college trip and i don't i'm sure you know about this but i remember seeing the amsterdam mime festival oh yeah and it was it had absolutely nothing to do with mime in the way that i'd seen it before and it was all about physical theater in the way that you're talking about it and and the physical storytelling and my mind exploded as an artist and a director. Cause I thought, Oh, anything is possible storytelling wise. And, you know, I saw two things and one, I just remember a story of a family in a house and like putting little rocks around this platform and that was their home. And then this whole platform went on like a felt like 45 to 60 degrees and they became a bed and then they walked down at it. And Oh, wow. And I say that. And then I saw, uh, Frankenstein it was done the film was shot on a scrim and then the scrim went away and then it was the actors performing on a forced perspective and doing all the movement as if it was an old black and white and the relationship to the screen and I'll never I remember both of those things were both two shows where I went oh it's about imagination I can yeah. do anything and these actors weren't using anything really but their body Right, right. In incredible ways. Um, pausing. Um, <laughs> in my head, I went, well, I can't really be afraid of silence if I'm talking. To you. <laughs> um, but when you came east and you were training at Rutgers and you'd been doing work to support yourself, at, at what point did you, did you ever have a moment where you did you, at what point did you know, did you feel like, oh, I got to the next level? Oh, something's mm-hmm. happening. I'm going to have a career doing this. Or like we talked about the fraudulent feeling of teaching, does that always come and go? It does feel like, I, <laughs> um, uh, I feel, <laughs> I feel like I am starting over. I constantly starting over in a lot of ways. And, um, It's more that I, you know, it's, it, it's more every once in a while, like, like, oh my gosh, I'm 62 and I've never done anything but be a performer. So I guess I have a career, you know, but, but I also have this feeling of like, oh my gosh, I got to make some work. I don't have a job. And for me, it always comes down to like, how am I going to, how am I going to live? I need to make some work. I need to make some work. So it, that's been as much of as, as anything, as I very early on decided that my work would be art. And so I have to keep making art. But if I, you know, but art's the more important thing because if I wanted to make money, I wouldn't have stayed in this business, you know, but I, but I have kind of given myself the, the assignment that that's how I make a living. So I'm going to do it creating things. And all along, it sounds like there's been this entrepreneurial spirit of, <laughs> well, going, you said it, so going to Girl Scouts and teaching mime and going to a university and teaching, you know, teaching something else and then creating a show and then, you know, but it yeah. always, and, and taking the tour, to something you make at the Adirondack Theater, and then figuring out ways to show it again and again and and get it get it its extended life that it needs yeah and that's it's not just making it but also knowing that like you're going to get it out there and so i feel like if it just if you just keep working if you were if you make some work the next thing is going to 
present itself. I, I, that's been my experience anyway. I never know quite what the next thing is, but if I just keep keep going, there's another opportunity out there, I feel like. So Scott Illingworth and I, as a matter of fact, are just, uh, our Zoom meeting is tomorrow to um, begin working on a new piece. Cause I just wanna, we don't have any other real plan for it, but I just have to get something going. I just feel like it's time, so. And is this gonna be a solo piece or is this gonna be yeah. another combined Johnny Gunn? Um, I think it's solo piece, but I'm interested. I wanna make a piece that doesn't have words, but I'd like to do a piece maybe with some kind of, I don't know, that's what I have to talk to Scott about. I wanna play a little bit with, um, with uh, uh, projection or film a little. I've just never done that. Um, so we'll see. <laughs> I've never done that, so this is time to do it. Yeah, yeah. Good. Um, before I let you go and being respectful of time, and I think we've said a ton of things already, but since I asked the question, if you've thought about it, do you have mm -hmm. advice when you think about, or what do you tell your, what would you, what do you tell your early career artists that you work with? Um, I, I, um, I like to remind students that Well, it sounds like a negative, but my thought was like, you can't skip any steps. You know, you just have to learn, you have to take, you have to take each lesson, you know, and rather than looking over to here, like I'm, I wanna be there right now. If you're here, you have, there's steps you have to get. Very rarely do you get to jump. So I find myself saying that a lot to students. It's just like, just follow the steps you know, one lesson to the next lesson to the next lesson. And don't, don't skip any, just know that you're, you're learning your lessons. Um, and I, the other thing I, I guess I, I really do believe is there's nobody, I want to, I want to encourage students to know that there's no one else like them. They don't have to be like anybody else. There's nobody like them. And the more you learn about yourself, the more unique you become the less anybody else will be able to be like you because you are your truest self. So, and that comes from, you know, separate from acting. Yes, read plays and find out what plays you like, but also read, read the news, you know, like, and walk around in the world and just know that that's a really valuable um, exercise to research how you experience the world and what makes you feel great and what, breaks your heart and what interests you to know those things and, and allow them to drop inside. So you know who you are. And that is, that is the key to just really, really hone your own self. for the conversation i really really enjoyed it and i love you know i love what he said at the end about just knowing yourself taking the time to that and of course the simple thing of you can't skip steps simple not you know i think about that but i think in the career and the journey of theater and everything and what i was saying about the before about like oh we want to get out of this pandemic well it's not going to happen because you you know skip steps of safety and security and vaccines and all the other things that we're doing and i thought that resonated on a lot of levels, mainly about impatience for me. Not, and uh, but I thought it was great, and I love the follow follow his hand when he's writing. It's follow his hand, and I think that idea of just paying attention to what he unconsciously wants to create, where it wants to go, and I I think that sense of trust in your artistry and trust in what wants to come out, and that it will take a form, and you will find that form. And I also love talking to him about the idea of teaching and the artistry and that it's a, the idea is to help people find their voice. And it's clear. And I think as we're, the conversation was so great and I love that he found his voice. He found his method for being an artist with mine. And that I, I was so all along the way, listening to people, his, you know, high school teacher who recognized it and gave, you know, gave him permission to 
I don't know, permission, but, you know, him teaching workshops and putting on things, going to his mother, sending him to see Marcel Marceau, as the people who recognized it and encouraged him. And I think those people, at whatever level they are in our life, are incredibly important because, you know, you can always, you can have to do something, but it's that support and in recognition and, and encouragement from others that gets you to the next level and gets you to get to the next opportunity even and to keep going. And so I really appreciated hearing him talk about that and everything. He's, uh, it was a great conversation. And, you know, I hope, uh, I'm thinking about it and going, you know, just, just remembering the people who pushed me in the right direction and also and were encouraging. But I think this, this <laughs> it's very funny also that I'm like thinking about going, yeah, I think this year it's going to, this year, this week, right now, I just want to be a little reflective on, yeah, is who's who's encouraged? Who's taken the the time to say, you know, or the or yeah, I think you should do this. You know, I've been doing it long enough now, but there were people along the way who were really important, and I just want to make sure to acknowledge and thank them if I can. You know, it's one thing for me to discover that I wanted to be a director, but then when my directing teacher thought I should be a director, you know, told me, you know, that charted a course for me. You know, when I got support to go do to go I talked a little bit about going to London on this college trip and to see different art and that got supported by my family I thought oh right you know so it was really just surprised that I'm going down this path but I'm really grateful for it and I think as we just did you know it's funny I was talking in the last episode about you know the new year and what are you going to do and be intentional and stuff I just think right now I want to practice a little gratitude for the people who support me and for anybody who reached out and has supported you to just think about them a little bit because I think they're the people who are going to keep us going and help us follow our hand and find out what's next and stay in this art form and whatever stay creative and moving forward in whatever ways we can while it's finding its new stable legs so with that i'm gonna say thank you bill again and glad everybody's listening and you know continue to stay safe continue to stay productive and with that we're out